Ladies and gentlemen, hello, Internet. Mike Erie coming at you from uh, suburban Columbus, Ohio, joined in studio via Skype by another very intelligent guest, Mr. A.J. Swoboda, live from Portland, Oregon. A.J., how are you? How's the rain? How's the weather? How's the summer? Well, um, it's not raining. It's the, the one kind of one day out of the year that it's not. And uh, because of that, my v vitamin D level is very high and I'm, I'm not <laughs> depressed today. So I'm well. Portland, from what little I know of you, Portland very much seems a match mm. for, for your sort of introspection. And um, <laughs> I, I love it. So Portland, I have loads of friends in Portland. Um, the first time I was ever there, I was there to meet John Mark Comer. Yes. And uh, from, uh, from now Bridgetown Church, but uh, prior to that. Um, and we... I'd never been there. I'm an Ohio guy living in California, which I think is, you know, pretty wacky. I yeah. come off the, the plane in Portland. He picks me up. We go to this coffee shop. There's a guy in a kilt and a mm -hmm. fishnet t-shirt yeah. with no sleeves. Yeah. And he wants to tell us as he's serving us coffee. I mean, I, I had chai tea just for the record. Um, he's telling us about his poetry. And asked if we'd like to to hear some of his poetry, and he begins reciting his poetry uh, off the cuff to us. And and I think to myself, first of all, this is my city because he was he was a big guy in a kilt, which I'm all for, by the way. I just I love that. But then secondly, I'm I'm thinking to myself, this is fantastic. This mm -hmm. is so so. I think, by the way, that I think that's Jim. He's one of our elders. Uh, <laughs> I'm. You're describing him adequately. Oh, I hope it is because he was, he was, he was a large man, in a <laughs> kilt and a fishnet, like without sleeve shirt thing, and it was amazing. And I'm, I'm just going, okay, these, these are my people. I never knew that, but these are my people. In the Midwest, we call them rednecks, but out there, yeah, they just keep Portland weird. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, there are mayors or city councilors or. Yeah, no, we we institutionalize those kinds of people. They're the they're they're our hopes and dreams, our utopian um, vision for the future. So if if we can if we get to a kilt, then we've all arrived. Okay, all right. Listen, after after watching Braveheart for the hundredth time, um, I, I have sincerely wondered if I could pull it off. I, I'm Inter not going to. Interesting lie. comment on Braveheart, if I might. Of course, uh, you my, might. My, my my last name is Swoboda, as uh, as you mentioned, and Swoboda in in Russian mm. actually means freedom. So if you watch Braveheart in the Russian version, which you can get a Russian translation, when William Wallace dies at the end, he screams my last name. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now that's now that's something not a lot of people can say. Not a lot. So well done. We're uh, now just background on AJ, just so you guys know. He he is a he's got a doctorate from University of Birmingham, which is freaking awesome. Yeah. Um. I mean, not all doctorates are created equal. So that's so true. we could call you doctor, but that's too many initials, Doctor AJ. Nope. Yeah. Too much. Um. He leads a church, Theophilus. Correct? Is that how I pronounce Indeed. it? Indeed. Yep. Theophilus Church in uh, in urban Portland. That's correct. Did you plant that church? Did you start that we church? We did nine, nine years ago, and we're going on sabbatical this summer to to recover our spirits and souls. But it was nine years ago. Yep. That's fantastic. And then you also teach, right, at Fuller? I do. Yeah, I teach. Uh, I run a doctor of ministry program uh, on the Holy Spirit at Fuller, and then I teach at uh, Portland Seminary and Life Pacific and a couple other schools um, as well. So... What we're saying, guys, is this is a, he's a big freaking deal, all right? 
when, true. When you, it is true. When you teach, when the Holy Spirit empowers you to teach on the Holy Spirit, then, I mean, that's, that's kind of the circle of life. You know what I'm yep. saying? I mean, that's a, that's a big thing. Now, AJ has been on, the reason I wanted to talk to him, a couple of reasons, he's got a book out, um, which I devoured on the Sabbath, interestingly enough. I, I hate that command. I don't like the practice. I'm anti-Sabbath in every way, shape, or form, and the book was <laughs> unbelievably convicting. Unbelievably convicting and full of good stuff. But I want to rewind that, because if, if you just start talking about Sabbath, it's like, okay, cool, rest, yeah, technology bad, yeah, rest good, okay, great. But this is coming out of um, a journey for you that I, I, I want to just talk about for a little bit. So you've written several books, a, a couple I'm going to mention prior to the Sabbath one. One was called The Dusty Ones, right? And that yeah. was that was about wandering. Now, what what... Is that a metaphor? Um, mm. I've not read this one, so I'm, I'm just. But I'm looking at the title of it, going, "Okay, this sounds really interesting." Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, the uh, the dusty ones was um, the, really the dusty ones in a book before it called a glory Stark have the same kind of theme, and that is finding Jesus in the midst of tearing our faith apart. Um, Boy, that's and, not that's that that doesn't seem relevant at all these days. Yeah, not, not many. People, yeah, not not many find themselves in that category. <laughs> Um, the dusty ones really, I attempted to, to actually look at all of the times in the Bible that God's people are described as wandering. Hmm. And while wandering, there's certainly a negative connotation with that because wandering is not, uh, is often a result of sin or disobedience and whatnot. But what you find in the story of the, of the, of the whole arc of scripture is that wandering is often God's way of just getting people somewhere. And, and that, that it actually plays a really important role in the life of faith in both Israel and God's people. In fact, there's a line in Hebrews that says that the, the righteous were um, the hills and the world was not worthy of them. Um, and I, I, I just, I, I wanted to capture that image and, and draw it out a, a bit more and suggest that maybe God doesn't always give us all the answers because if he did, we would no longer actually need God. Right. Um, so the, the whole thing is about wandering. Uh, and of all the books that I've written, that's actually had probably more of an impact than any any anything else that I've 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 written. And I think it's because that theme really captures yeah. what a lot of people are experiencing. How does that relate to Glorious Dark? Well, at Glorious Dark, I wrote uh, I wrote after a season of of major um, deconstruction when I was in seminary, uh, which I, if if you want to hear, I'd be happy to tell you that story. But we yeah, I want to hear. Uh, I I went through um, kind of a a big deconstruction, pulled my faith apart, and I wrote that book kind of coming out the other side. And hmm. really, the <clears throat> the the whole theme of that book again, which is similar to the Wandering book, was that. Um, uh, when I was a little kid, I lived on a river in Oregon, and every year it would freeze. And I remember one one time I went out and looked at the river, and the top of the river was frozen. And my dad came out and said, you know, there's still water rushing underneath the river. And he he, he told me just about this beautiful image of a frozen river with water rushing underneath. Hmm. And that's the whole image of the book, is that even when our faith looks completely dead, and it looks as though we're hopeless and have no, um, we, we have no future, we have no potential recovery that there is always a stream of resurrection flowing underneath everything oh, and there is on. hope come yeah, on there is, yeah. there is always hope now you got to give it you got to give us a little bit of that story cuz that 
I think we all want that to be true. Mm. But I think for a lot of people, it feels like once you start down the road of tearing apart your faith or deconstructing or whatever word you want to use, that, that feels like there's no coming back from that. Yeah. Well, boy, I, for me, yeah, I, for me, you know, I met Jesus when I was 16. I was not raised in a Christian home. I was in my math class in high school, and the two girls behind me had been reading the Left Behind series and were arguing about when Jesus was coming back. And I, I had never heard about Jesus at all. And I went home and I read my Bible mm. that my dad had given to me, and mm. I had this insane Jesus experience. And started wow. following Jesus, went to church um, when I was 23, uh, 24, started feeling the call to ministry. I went to seminary. And when I was in seminary, I started studying the Bible. Uh, or I should say I started studying about the Bible. Mm. And when I started studying about the Bible, I started seeing a lot of things in the Bible that really scared me. Um, like? And, uh, well, I, 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 I remember the moment that somebody pointed out to me that John 5, 4 is not in the Gospel of John. I mean, if you mm. open your Bible, it's just not there. Right. And I remember that moment uh, because I had been worshiping the Bible rather than Jesus. Um, my entire faith started to crumble. And, mm. um, and at the end of the day, um, that began a sequence of about four years where I pulled my faith apart. And... Um, you know, interestingly enough, I was a pastor at the time, and by, <laughs> by, by the grace by the grace of God, because ultimately being a pastor forced me to have to stay in the church and continue to process stuff. And I'm grateful to God for that because um, I began to see, as all of my other friends were deconstructing, I began mm-hmm. to notice that everybody that was deconstructing, uh, that there was sort of this inerrancy if you were deconstructing of your of your deconstruction. That if you're mm. deconstructing, then you were honest and true and good. And, and I've noticed as well that in that narrative of deconstructing, that it's completely fine to be a spiritual seeker in deconstruction, but if you're a spiritual, if you're a spiritual seeker, but if you're a spiritual finder, you're closed-minded, arrogant, and bigoted, mm-hmm. and that there's, you can't find. And what I began to discover was that that's not cool, and that it's okay to find Jesus, and that we shouldn't be ashamed of finding Jesus in, in the midst of our deconstruction. Um, and I've observed just a, a whole generation of people that are deconstructing. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if there's a process to learning how to deconstruct our deconstruction a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and beginning to actually question, doubt our doubts a little bit and question our questions a little bit. Because at the end of the day, I, there's a, C.S. Lewis points out, I, um, I had read this theologian once, when Jesus was crying out to the Father, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, when I read that even God... Um, even God brings questions to God, that that was when he stopped being an atheist. That was the minute he believed in God. Hmm. C.S. Lewis, in his, in his book on the Psalms, he says that there are these times when, when Jesus says that to the Father, there's no answer. The Father doesn't say anything back. And he says the most important part of that story is that in our questions, God sometimes absolutely refuses to give us the answer hmm. because we actually need to, to learn to trust God. Um, and that, that to me was a, a major turning point in my in my faith of of not thinking that deconstruction is inerrant that you can be deconstructing and actually, um, yeah that 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 it's and and that deconstruction is really 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 it's a it's really powerful and mm-hmm. can be really good 
but it can also be profoundly depressing. <laughs> depressing in the existential sense of I don't know yeah, what to believe yeah, anymore. The anchors of my life are gone. All, or do you mean something that. bigger? Yeah, yeah, all all of that, and and even even emotional and psychological disorders. I mean, or distress. I should say. I mean, it it is it is an all encompassing experiencing experience that I have tremendous compassion for. Yeah. Um, but our questions and our deconstruction are not in themselves inerrant. They are they are filled with um, they are filled with errors and and um, and and mm. and at the end of the day, I mean, I, I don't want to sound prof- too cliche, but um, there there is like hope, <laughs> and right. and that our our questions do not need to push us away from Jesus. They actually, I think, are his invitation to to himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, what yeah. were things? What were things along that journey? So, so keeping you kind of in the church through being vocationally connected was a huge thing. Yeah. What were other aspects, practices, um, things mm. that, that sustained you through it that looking back on yeah, it now, that's a great to... question. Well, one would be, uh, somebody gave me this advice in the middle of it. Um, don't, don't just read the deconstruction people, read the reconstruction people too. And uh, you know, in that time frame. Um, I remember where and when I was when somebody gave me Tom Wright's book, The Last Word, which is his theology of yeah. of the the the, the theology basically of, of of scripture. What you know, what's what the Bible is, and that book single handedly probably saved. Um, it didn't save my faith, but boy, oh boy, it kept me going. And I, I so all that to say, I think when we go through deconstruction, we just throw ourselves into. Just reading the critical voices, just just mm-hmm. listening to the certain podcast that deconstructs, just having conversations with those people that are are pulling things apart. And I would encourage us to read people on the other side who have come out the other side, because there are so many important voices uh, who can help us rebuild rebuild our faith. That's good. I met a guy yesterday in our church. I went to to lunch with him, and he was telling me he went to this event. Uh, one of those kind of deconstructing folks just came mm-hmm. to Portland, and. He was. He walked away from the the event, and he said, "He goes to me. This is the first time in my life." He goes, "I have done enough deconstruction. I'm tired. I'm ready to believe in Jesus again." Mm. And it was like the most liberating moment in the world for him just to say that. Mm. And I think there's something powerful in in just saying to Jesus, "I don't want to want to always be deconstructing." God, would you show me yourself? Like, just tell him that. You, tell God that you want to see. God for himself, for who God is. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, and then prayer is good too. Yeah. Honest, honest prayer, yeah. non-cliche yeah, filled, like yeah. angsty prayer. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. Um, why, why do you think deconstruction is, ha- deconstruction is happening at, in such a broad scale, um, in, in such a kind of almost severe way? Is it mm. is it technologically driven that we're being confronted with stories and um, and people that you know we've never had to wrestle with before? I mean, what do you what do you think sits behind that? If you had to guess, mm. well, I certainly think that um, that to a, a big degree, uh, social media technology has affected greatly um, not only our exposure to the world but our ability to uh, sanitize our world of people mm. that we don't want to listen to. Mm. 
so I'm simultaneously able to engage with a um, an open and affirming progressive uh, Baptist pastor in Tennessee, uh, and simultaneously can walk to a conservative Pentecostal from Ethiopia. Um, so I have these I have these abilities to listen to these all these voices at the same exact time, and then at the simultaneous moment, be able to unfriend and block any of them. Yeah. So I, it allows me to control the world, but it allows me to face the world in a new and raw and very scary way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's dimensions of, of that that are, that are involved. Um, you know, in my experience, there is this movement of people that moved to Portland from the Midwest who were raised in really conservative small towns and they moved to Portland. And the one thing that keeps them engaged with their hometown is Facebook. And so what happens is they have this really weird experience Hmm. of moving away from home, coming to Portland and experiencing the weird progressive nine, the weird progressive world of Portland. And their only connection is Facebook to their hometown. And all of a sudden, they start realizing that everything that they thought they knew back in their hometown is not everything that is true in the world. Mm-hmm. And so there creates this dissonance between them and, and what they were raised with. And it usually comes to a head and, and it snaps. Mm-hmm. And usually that's, that's when deconstruction really starts, really starts happening. Yeah. Um, how did you get from deconstructing and two books on deconstructing to writing a Sabbath book, which mm. <laughs> when I, when I think of people that keep the Sabbath, uh, one of our dear friends in Columbus is a seventh day Adventist and you, you speak yes. highly of them in terms of, you know, they're, they're healthy and, and he's very, very dutiful yep. in uh, keeping the Sabbath. But you know, in my experience as a church guy, I mean, I, I, he's maybe one of three or four uh, people that I've ever met who've taken that seriously. Yep. So when did that, in, in, in the deconstruction, reconstruction process, when did you decide to take that seriously and why? Well, the, the, yeah, the, the truth is, I don't, I don't think it would be fair to say that I'm in, I'm in the process of deconstruction anymore. I, I, I really do, as it were, I've come back to Jesus in a, in a very real and powerful way. And that's not to suggest that people in deconstruction are not coming back to Jesus. It's just, um, I'm not in that season anymore. Yeah. And I really do believe, um, I, I have a, a deep sense of call now to invite the church into the deeper, the deep things of God. So that transition, you know, took place a, a number of years ago, maybe eight eight years ago. Um, probably a lot of the deconstruction that I was going through, Mike, probably had to do with the fact that I really was living unhealthy rhythm, rhythms. Mm-hmm. I had a I had a profound burnout experience when I was about 27, 26 years old as a new college pastor, working eighty hours a week. Yeah. And uh, I, th- I don't think that my deconstruction was helped by the fact that I was working that much. Um, <laughs> it definitely was maybe fueled a little bit by it. Yeah. And it turned out once I, once I started taking a day of rest a week and I had space to be quiet and I gave God a little bit of space to, to be in my life, um, that had, a, that had a, a very deep impact on hmm. my peace and anxiety level. Hmm. Um, Taking a day a week from social media really helps all of our bodies, minds, souls, and spirits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. What, 
what is, how is Sabbath, now we know what it was for Israel. Yes. Right, of course, and I don't want to rehash that. But how is Sabbath different from a day off where we're, we're numbing mm. or we're whatever, or a vacation where we're just escaping? Like, yeah. how, how is Sabbath, because obviously we would, there is a big theology sitting behind this, but, but also practically, how does that, how does Sabbath become restorative in ways that day offs aren't or vacations yep. aren't? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, well I'd say it was things. in your book, so yes. Oh well, I've answered myself. Let me let me <laughs> attempt to respond to me. Um, uh, f- first would be obviously at the very beginning of of the Bible when God made a- Adam and when God took the man and the woman, He put them in the Garden of Eden. Uh, he gave them. He created them on day six, and on day seven was a day of was a day of rest, which is in itself, I think, a very instructive point. Mm-hmm. That Adam and Eve's first day of existence was a day of of rest. Um, they were made on day six. Day seven was a day of rest, and that's powerful because it undoes all of our understandings of what rest is as Americans. We generally think that we rest after seven day, six days of work, and then we get a day of rest. And actually, in the biblical story, we begin with rest, and out of that, we get our our work done. Yeah, that's huge. Um, it's ma- it's a compl- it's it's a complete reversal of everything that we assume, and and the second thing is when when we think about a, a day off, generally speaking, what we mean by that is a day at home where I'm at home, but I'm thinking about work, and I'm mm-hmm. at home and I'm scheming about work, and I'm at home and I'm doing mowing my lawn and doing all that stuff. And Eugene Peterson, in in a in an article that he wrote a, a number of years ago, he says, you know, when you think about a day off, that category is nowhere in the Bible. Uh, the Sabbath is that day when Adam and Eve, when the man and the woman walked around the Garden of Eden and enjoyed everything that God had already completed. And Carl Barton, one of his, and one of his long diatribes, says that um, that that day when Adam and Eve walked around in the Garden of Eden, they had accomplished absolutely nothing. They had done mm-hmm. nothing worthy of their own praise and their own reflection. All they could do was walk around and enjoy what God had done. If we spend our our day off just tinkering at home, getting work done, thinking about work, that is very different than a Sabbath day. Eugene Peterson says a day off is not a it's not a Sabbath. That's a bastard Sabbath. That's Whoa. a that's a that's a that's not a true Sabbath. Is a day when we have a twenty four hour period to just stop and sit and be and enjoy good food, be with our friends. Watch an episode of Lost if we're stuck in the early two thousands, um, <laughs> whatever, and just and just be. But that that is very different than a day off. But for some of us, that could that could be a day off. I binge on Netflix. I eat ice cream. I mean, I'm yes. just speaking hypothetically here. Yes. Does that Absolutely. automatically make that a Sabbath? No. Um, that at the end of the day, the only way that one knows if I think Jesus kind of gave gave a pretty clear direction on what a sabbath is and that is mm-hmm. it's just when you know when an ox falls into the ground on the sabbath is it better to you know save it take keep its life or or, or let or take its life away and i think that that is the principle of the sabbath if it is life-giving um and, and it brings life to our souls and our minds then then it's a sabbath but that doesn't that doesn't give us a pink slip or it doesn't give us a permission slip as a hall pass um, to to do whatever we want to do. I'm not running that's, around. In that's what I'm fishing groups. for. That's what I'm fishing yes. for is because I can very easily hear Sabbath as okay. I get to check out, yep. and uh, I'm going to binge on Netflix. Like I said, I'm going to eat some ice cream. I'm going to take a nap, and, and all of those with a Sabbath orientation could be Sabbathing. 
But what's the what's the orientation that makes them Sabbath versus just me mm. to a way for me to numb or escape or check out? Mm. Does that make sense? What's that? What's that it, it extra does. thing? Yeah, I think that the only way to truly measure if we are intentionally entering into the kind of rest that God desires in a Sabbath day is that we have to be really open to the Holy Spirit. And that is that we need to ask the Holy Spirit to guide our hearts and minds if we are if we are resting or we're not. And it is very common for me on our Sabbath day to have the Holy Spirit um, slap me around a little bit and say, AJ, this is not this is not what your soul <clears throat> needs right now. This is not what I've invited you into. Now I should point out, even in the life of Jesus, <clears throat> the Sabbath was not. Uh, uh, was not void of even ministry. Jesus mm-hmm. cast course. out, he cast out more demons on the Sabbath than any other day of the week. Yeah, tons of healings. Yeah, healings, miracles, you name it. Yeah. Not to mention the, the harrowing of hell in Second Peter, where Whoa. Jesus on Saturday goes, where does he go? He goes to hell and he preaches to those who are tormented. Um, what does Jesus do on that Saturday, on that Sabbath? He's preaching. Um so the, the Sabbath is not the end of activity. Um, it's just the reorientation back to our creator. And if we don't have a day to do that, man, how is that different from vacation? Um, a vacation is awesome and I love it. And it's about, and, and it's important. It's, you know, synonymous, sim- similar with a sabbatical in the Bible. Um, but <clears throat> nobody just sort of breathes once every seven years, you know, like you need to breathe mm-hmm. every week, every day, every moment. And the Sabbath cannot be replaced with a vacation. And the truth is, we've all had the experience of going on a, a vacation and coming back more exhausted afterwards than we are right. rested. Yeah. Uh, that weekly opportunity to stop and breathe and be with God, it's so critical. And people that don't do it, here's what's weird to me, Mike. I am for <laughs> the first time experiencing on social media, I am experiencing people getting angry or mad at me for being silent and reflected in national and for the first time silence and reflection are being interpreted as being complicit with the problem and here's what's problematic for me as a christian mm-hmm. so much of my response to pain has got to be going into the silence and finding god in the middle of it mm-hmm. and we the sabbath is permission to have one day a week where we're not trying to fix the world, we're allowing God to fix us. And if we don't have that, we're going to go from crisis to crisis and just make things worse. You mean I don't have to virtue signal that I'm Sabbathing? Mm. Um, I'm doing that because I wrote the book and I'm the one talking about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's a fair yeah. point. No, the, I mean, it, it is a re- it, the minute that we are in a place as a culture where silence is complicity, Right. we are in toast. Because we we are we are we are toast. No, we're not in toast. We are toast, and because we're in toast. And if we're, we're not in careful. Toast. Both in toast and toast. <laughs> we we have we have got to stop reacting as though as though action minus reflection is making a po- and, I, and I'm not seeking to undermine anybody who isn't who calls who really believes that their role in this world is to be an activist or to to make substantial systemic changes. That is powerful and good. But it is also really powerful and good to go into the darkness and sit in the presence of God as we lament as well. Come on. Yeah. All right. So that, that'll get some reaction in the podcast. That's good. 
Because there is the, the silence is complicity movement now. If you're not yes. speaking out against things, you're complicit. And so yeah. that's good. That's a good tension to explore what in a later po- podcast. Restivism. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. The, Did you come is, up with that? Uh, I, I didn't actually come up with that. Uh, a guy in, in Australia came up with that term. But it, I, I, actually, like that. I actually think um, – Let me. can I give you an illustration here? Of course. Uh, okay. So – do I look intelligent to you? You well from the, from the the small view of your face that I have on my screen right now. I'm your right. face don't is answer. virtue signaling. You're, I, you're, I fill the screen, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was in Blacksburg, Virginia, a couple years ago, and I was uh, speaking at a church on the Sabbath. And afterwards, I was hanging out with the guy who is the building. He's he oversees all the buildings at Virginia Tech University. Mm. We're sitting in his backyard, and he was in the military for 30 years. Uh, he was an admirable, a- admiral in the Navy, and he was telling me this phenomenon in military history. When you look at the people who came back as veterans from World War II and Vietnam, there are these two completely different experiences. When the men came back from Vietnam, sky like drug rates sky high, heroin epidote, uh, opioid usage sky high, abuse rates sky high, depression sky high, PTSD sky high, and the men came home and seriously were just – it was depressing. I mean, everybody who came back, it was just a depressing time versus World War II. When the men came back from World War II, they were happy, joyful, uh, low abuse rates, low drug abuse rates. Um, and they all came back and were so happy that we literally have a generation of people named after that generation mm-hmm. called the baby boomers. They literally just came home and had babies. I mean, so they were really – about. Yeah, right? So when you take these two generations, you ask the question, he goes, why, why were these two different? And he said, there's literally one theory in military history. There's one theory that holds water, and it's this, that after Vietnam, the men literally got on planes from the battlefield, and they were back in their living room within two days. They went wow. from the battlefield to their living room within a couple of days. Right. Whereas in World War II, the men didn't get on planes and fly home. They all got on boats for like two months and sailed the Pacific or the Atlantic and came home. Yeah. And this guy tells me, he said, there's one day, what do you do when you're on a boat with your brothers for two months after the worst fighting in the world? Oh. You cry, you tell your stories, you weep, you process. And he told me that and I said, that is the greatest metaphor for what is happening in our world right now. Hmm. We have no time at all to process all the crap that's going on in the world. Hmm. And so we go from one thing to another and we just bring our pain from one to the other. We do not respond anymore. It hmm. is reactivity all the time and sabbath keeping gives us a place to process before we do more damage than good that's good where what's it look like for you you have kids right yeah. you have a couple kids we have one child but we speak of him in quinn the in the, uh, the quinster well elliot is my son quinn is my wife and elliot who is our only son we speak of him in the plural we so there <laughs> we have many many children um but we do we've got we've got one one kid and how old's, how old's uh, Elliot? He's six. He's almost seven this summer. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So what do we do? We, um, I come home on Friday night, and we light our Sabbath uh, candles, and then we go to bed. Uh, that night, we have a big meal, and then we go to bed. And on Saturday morning, my son and I and my wife make the biggest batch of pancakes you've ever imagined. I can imagine and, big pancakes, just yeah, for the record. Too. Yes, indeed. And we do the pancakes because there's this old Jewish tradition that on the morning of the Sabbath, um, the Jews, the, uh, the Jewish father was to get up before all the kids and was to give the kid 
uh, a spoon of honey so that no child would ever uh, forget the sweetness of God's rest. So we do pancakes, and then um, we enjoy the afternoon, and then um, when... What's that? Hold on. What's that look like? Enjoy the afternoon. Um, well, it means a lot of things. It means and my son gets to watch one movie on the Sabbath, and usually when he watches that movie, my wife and I <clears throat> take a nap. Because <laughs> the rabbis were very specific about how many they did. times you, you should actually, make love. You were obliged if you were yes. if you were you were obliged to make love. So that um, that nap taking is only going to last a couple more years before he figures out there's something else going on. Yes, and, but here's what's awesome: when he figures it out, what a gift that he gets because he's going to get the gift of knowing that his God really cares about his parents' marriage. Yep, and he's going to think you're gross, but yes, but both of those a simultaneous experience, <laughs> vomiting and praising the Lord at the same time. Perfect. Yeah. All right. So, so I and then we eat lots of good food. Here's a key: you got to eat lots of good food. Okay. Um, you got to spend time with people that you love. The Sabbath does not mean that you run away from community. Okay. Um, you spend time with people that you love. <clears throat> read a do what Eugene Peterson does. He he goes on a hike and reads a psalm. That's one. That's all he does. So go on a hike and read, read a psalm. So something that integrates nature <clears throat> and and gets a little scripture in your heart is good. Mm -hmm. um, I would say take a lot of time, um, take some time on the Sabbath to be silent and let your soul come out and actually say what it needs to say. Because sometimes there's you've been beating crap into it all week long and it just mm. needs a chance to vomit it back out. Mm. <clears throat> um, eat good food, more good food, and then get more good food. So a okay. lot of good food. Okay. You know, there are parts of that I, I really connect with already. Yeah, the food part. Is that, <laughs> oh, like, oh, AJ, that's hurtful. And the nap. And the nap. Oh, the nap. Oh, I don't nap. know when it happened, but it was like all around the same time I started listening to AM talk radio and I was able to take uh -huh. naps now at the drop of yeah. a hat. And I think that's when I determined I was an adult. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like the, the music. Yeah. Now I want to listen to people yell at each other. That's yeah. relaxing. Yeah. It's now, a really good Sabbath. And this doesn't happen very often. Okay. But what it does all right. glorious is when... When I get two naps, I I don't even believe that's possible. I don't even it's believe that's possible. possible. It's possible. So you're saying you you because because the one of the beautiful things too is that in the scriptures every day starts with rest, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they reckon mm -hmm. they reckon the Sabbath from evening to evening. So literally, the first part of your day is sleeping. Yeah, it's that, exactly. it's that same same principle. And yep. uh, so, so, which is why the Jews begin the Sabbath in the evening. You begin absolutely. the rest with the rest. Yes. Well, with the food, and then the rest. Because yeah. I always rest better when there's food. Let me just say yeah. that right now. So, yeah. so you light a candle. You you pray whatever you're going to pray. You you eat. You take a nap, or you go to bed, and then you get up, and there's room for two naps on a Sabbath day, and you don't even have to apologize. Potentially, again, Oof. it depends. It depends on the week. But I don't even. Um, you're speaking words that I understand in English, but concepts I know not of. Yeah, I'm speaking in <laughs> tongues. I'm a Pentecostal speaking in tongues over here. Yes. Now, yeah, uh, now, how do you how gotta, do you Sabbath with little kids? Oh, well, it's, it's very hard. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's almost impossible. We have a Seth. He does not Sabbath. 
no. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult. And I would say that um, because of our sort of modern American individualistic ways, yes. um, we don't we don't Sabbath with our families anymore because we don't do that. There's no grandparents in the room yeah, that's uh, right. to watch the kids. It used to be that for the Jewish system, there's a reason that the Bible doesn't talk about daycare at all. Yeah. Um, because in the Jewish system, like Sabbath was daycare. You would you would go over to grandma and grandpa's and um, they would they would be able to watch the kids for you for a little bit. And they uh, so that was part of their Sabbath was blessing mm, you with yep. yours. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Got they it. hadn't seen the kids all week, and so they get to be with them. Um, but it's very hard. I, and I think that actually, like I, I preached for three weeks on the Sabbath in our church, and I preached on things that have really upset people. I, I mean, I preached on sexuality. I preached on polyamory. I preached on marijuana because I got to, it's in, I'm in Portland and I've had to preach about these things and I've upset people. And I preached for three weeks on the Sabbath and I don't think I've ever had more people leave our church, <laughs> but here's what's interesting. Wow. And, and this, the group, the group of people who, who experienced the most pain from the Sabbath message of all people were moms. Oh, because it's so hard to hear this message and you go, well, God's given me kids to care for. Right. And, it's hard, man, to be a mom, to be a dad, to have a kid on Sabbath. It's hard. And the key is not that we do the Sabbath perfectly. The key is that we try. And that's all that matters is that yeah. we try. God enters into people trying. One, one last question. So the, so the book is called Subversive Sabbath. And you can, you can hear a bit why. The Surprising Power of Rest in a Nonstop World. Um, one of the things you cover. So I, I've preached on the Sabbath from as as a as a man who you know would preach on um like fasting right i i I do not practice what I would preach, so I can announce <laughs> what the Bible says on this yes um but you you said something so so a lot of the uh, a lot of the stuff i you know I've heard, but you got into some facets man that were really fascinating, so I want you to unpack um one phrase that I, I, I really resonated with because I, I always associated with Jubilee, but I never associated with Sabbath. And that's the phrase you, you literally have a sentence that just says Sabbath is economic justice. Mm. And you're responding to the, um, to the objection that some will make to the idea of Sabbathing, that Sabbathing is just for the privileged. Yes. That you have to be, you have to be a certain kind of, um, at a certain income level or a certain yes. socioeconomic level before you can actually practice this. Some people have to work two jobs seven days a week just yep. to live. Yep. So, and, and, and so you're making this big case uh, that, that, uh, that that's not the way that it is. And, and you actually say, here's why the privilege should Sabbath, which I absolutely love. But, but you had this great line. So I wondered if you could just unpack that whole concept Mm, uh, mm. Obviously, obviously, it's more detailed in the book. But the idea of, of Sabbath being expression of economic justice, I was really interested in. Yep. Well, the the number one pushback that I would even give as an academic to the Sabbath, the, the my greatest critique, if I had a convo with God about this one, is well, what about the poor? Like we can say that what what this rest thing is awesome, but what about the poor? I mean, what do I say about the single mother of eight who works at McDonald's? that literally it's a life or death situation for her. Like, am I supposed to seriously say that she needs to be taking a day of rest? Which, by the way, I've come to find that if you ask that woman 
if she could have a day of rest every week, would she want it? And she would say, you better believe I'd love a day of rest. Right. So it's not an issue of that she doesn't want it. It's an issue that often she can't have it. That's right. And <clears throat> what I've come to conclude is that ultimately the, re- the, the poor cannot rest until the rich start doing it. Like unless the privileged actually start doing it first, it doesn't matter because – you look at an organization, I mean, and I have all sorts of political feelings about these organizations like Ooh. Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A, but you can have all sorts of critiques that you want for them, but they lose billions of dollars every week for the fact that they shut down on Sundays so that people can go home and be with their families. That systemic economic business decision affects poor people like no other. Mm. And I think that the, the, the poor will not fully enter into the rest that God has dreamt for them until we rich, privileged people start doing it. And it means that we are willing to make less money. It means that we're willing to work less. Because in the rat race of the world, if the rich work seven days a week, then the poor have to work even more than that in order to get to keep up. Yes. So it requires, it requires the privileged and the rich to have a theology and a practice of restraint. And the Sabbath is part of that story. Oh, so good. You have this, uh, your comments just brought this line uh, to my mind. It's not a true Sabbath if my rest becomes another slavery. Yep. Oh, so good. So, um, so this is out now. So are um, the Dusty Ones and Gloria Stark. So check check those out. Uh, AJ also quoted about 3,000 scholars. um, Yeah. They were, they're, they're all good. Every footnote is virtue signaling. It's all just one <laughs> big sign. <laughs> oh, AJ. Yeah, I, I noticed too, I'd never heard of this book, but you, you had a book. Let me pull it up. It was um, Redeeming How We Talk. <laughs> yes. So I think, yes. That, I think that will be a future episode because uh, that seems relevant. It's, it's yeah. it seems like wow and and I don't know if you know this but there's a new Supreme Court justice opening we get to fight over all fall yes so that's gonna be awesome be that that'll Have, be great. are they considering you Mike something strikes me that that they're gonna they're gonna call you I don't know why well the one the one thing I've said on the record is that uh, I don't wear anything under those robes so Indeed. that may be disqualifying I'm not sure yeah. uh, but I wrote that would, hot. That, that would make you the swing vote, I suspect. If, no, if... No. Oh boy. Well, on that note, AJ, first of all, <laughs> I've been been an admirer of yours from afar. So great to talk with you in person. Thank you for your yeah. time. And that, by the way, was really funny. I'm trying yes. not to laugh. Um, but this book was really, really good, man. I I I kind of had I think what a lot of people have when you approach a book on the Sabbath, which is yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I've heard this. I got this. Yeah. I know it would be good for me. I know asparagus is good for me. Okay. <laughs> but, but there was the, like, this was really compelling and it got me thinking about, okay, what's this, you know, so for my wife to Sabbath, that means we, we grab a babysitter, you know, um, mm. and, uh, you know, that watches Seth for four or five hours. Yeah. Or, you know, what's that? Because sports for us, so we're at the age now where sports are all day Saturday mm. and and often on Sunday. Yep. So that can be a form of Sabbathing, uh, but I'm not sure. So I just trying to work it out in the in the midst of 
how our our culture is oriented is really really difficult. So um, I I love that you wrote it. I'm really was really convicted and inspired by it. Don't know what to do with it yet, but but like that that, that I don't get I don't get that feeling from a lot of books. A lot of books are like okay that was good, but this was like no this is really good. So um, my friend, thank you for your time. And uh, let, let's continue this down the road. What's your, what's yeah, your well, next book? What's your next book? Yeah, well, I, I want to say to you just uh, publicly, I've been listening to your podcast. Is this virtue for, signaling? Is this? This is where I'm going to, yep, this is, yep. So uh, I've been listening to you for about a year, and I, I think that the Vox podcast is, uh, is an, an absolute service to the church. And I am grateful for you and your work. And I hope that you know that you're impacting a lot of people. Uh, and then secondly, my, my next book just came out ironically called, uh, yeah, redeeming how we talk. And it, Oh, that it came was, out that's the new one. It just came out like a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And it's, um, all about basically how to, yeah, how do we learn to talk to one another? Um, and, uh, that came out, that came out just, uh, just all recently. Right. Yep. All right. So I'm going to order that and read that. And then if it's good, We'll talk about it. Wow. Okay. We'll get wow. to practice talking about how we talk. Wow. I know, right? That's pressure. I know. That was that was Rob Bell's joke when he wrote a book called How to Talk About God. Mm-hmm. He was. Is that what it is? What? It was. Uh, what? He, what are we talking about when we talk about God? Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, some, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, the joke was he would talk about the book called Talking About What We Talk About When We Talk About God. <laughs> and so so you and I now can talk about how we talk when we're talking. Yeah. That's just a random <laughs> random throwaway. So not as good as the swing vote. That was much that was much better. Uh, All right. So um, my brothers and sisters, thank you as always for allowing um, – uh, me and us into your life. We we want to be a blessing uh, in the journey, and so love your feedback, love the comments you give. Um, as always, we're grateful. So let me close with a little blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine His face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you, and in these days, may He give you rest. Amen and amen. Till next time, my brothers and sisters. Thanks.